0: Tick-tock, tick-tock, thus goes the clock. Real time. We sleep in real time. We eat in real time. We work in real time. We play in real time. But what about our Christian faith? Do we live it out, really, in real time? Join us for the sermon series Christianity in Real Time. Well, if you'll find your copy of the Word of God, and let's turn to James chapter 1. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, I would invite you to stand. James chapter 1, and we read again today verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, When he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you open the eyes of our hearts, would you open the ears of our mind, would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. We do thank you, God, today that you have made your way of speaking to us simple. It is not complex. You have given us the Bible and it's in the bible that we hear your voice we want to hear clearly and we want to hear properly so speak today through your spirit by way of your holy spirit speaking to us through your word and help us to hear we ask it in jesus name amen you may be seated If you and I truly desire to live what Christianity is in the midst of real time, in the midst of real situations in life, in the midst of real relationships, in the midst of real struggles, we must have wisdom. Now, that's where we began last week in looking at the book of James And we ask the question, where do we find wisdom? And the truth of the matter is that we can find wisdom from three sources. I want you to look on the screen because there are two places where we can look for wisdom if we want wisdom. Now, the truth is that there's only one place for us as believers that we would even think about looking for wisdom because wisdom for us comes to us from and through the Word of God. But you and I live in the world, and you and I are sinners, so we're always tempted and attracted by the wisdom that comes to us from the world. I want you to see the contrast. The wisdom that comes from within us from birth and by nature, the wisdom that comes from outside of us that's given to us by the world is natural. And it's developed through knowledge, through the process of education. We learn to think rationally. We learn to think logically. We learn to think scientifically. We learn to think in terms of cause and effect so that we discern wisdom through examining what makes sense to us. And then we apply that wisdom in terms of what is best for us. Now, just think about this. If if you go about discerning, developing, and deploying wisdom from the perspective of the world, and then you come to Scripture, and you hear Jesus say, if anyone would come after me, what's the very first thing that you have to do? You have to deny yourself. You have to deny the way you come at what is best for you and what is right for you. You have to look to Jesus dying to yourself, and you're wanting wisdom from God. What about wisdom from God? Wisdom from God is supernatural. We're not born with it. We don't have it by nature. It's from beyond us. It's above us. It penetrates our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's developed over time through knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of the Word of God. Uh, I hope that when you became a Christian, whatever age uh, you were when you became a Christian, I hope you grew up in a Christian home. I hope that as you grew up in a Christian home, you went to Sunday school and you went to Awana WANA. And you participated in other things so that when you became a Christian, you knew something about the nature and character of the Bible. Uh, Some of you came to Christ like I did. When I became a Christian, I had never owned a Bible in my life. If somebody had asked me to name three or four books of the Bible, I had no clue. I, I knew absolutely zero about the Bible. I began from ground zero to listen to and to learn the Word of God. It took me years to develop any kind of basic fundamental knowledge of the Word of God and then to take that knowledge and connect it with the Spirit of God to get any kind of wisdom. Wisdom comes from revelation. It's supernatural. We develop it through a knowledge of the Word of God. God reveals Himself to us in His Word. And when we get the wisdom of God, this is what it produces in us. This is what it produces in every child of God. More than anything else, we desire to obey God because we know what is best for us is obeying God. We know that God has made us for himself and that a right relationship with God brings us to a place where, the, where the more, more than anything else, we want to obey him. The wisdom of this world has nothing to offer to a believer. Now, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 20, uh, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Where is the one who is wise, Paul asked. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Now, listen to this question. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Al, how in the world could you say the wisdom of the world has nothing to offer us? I didn't say it first. Paul says it here. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe we need wisdom for what do we need wisdom? Well, James says here at the beginning of the book, we need wisdom for three basic things. Number one, we need wisdom for trials and we all are going to face trials. Uh, we need wisdom for knowing how to live in the context of time. I, I hope all of you heard Psalm 94 as Joel was reading it this morning and the struggle the psalmist is having with the way the world operates and the way the people of God operate. We need wisdom to know how to live in this time and we need wisdom for facing temptations because every believer in this room faces temptations. What do we need then when it comes to facing trials? Well, listen to what James says. Verse 2 count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. Now, those two things don't belong together. Joy, trials. When you are facing trials, you don't get up in the morning and say, I've never been happier. I wished I had more. Uh, because I'm happy when I'm going through trials. What is James talking about when he brings these two things side by side in the middle? My brothers, he's talking, he's talking to people in the church. He's not talking to the world. Crowned it all joy. My brothers. When you meet various kinds of trials now. In the original language, the the Greek is probably the richest language that God ever gave us. And it is a language that has multiple words for meaningful concepts. For example, in the Greek language, there's not one word for love. How many words do you and I have for love? One. I love Anne. I love fried chicken. I love fried chicken differently than I love and. But I've just got one word, right? In the Greek, there are five, five words for love. Each of them has a different nuance. In that kind of rich language, there's only one word for trial. And that word has to do with trials and it has to do with temptations, the same word. What matters is the context. And so here in James, what we're going to see today is that we need wisdom for trials and we need wisdom for temptations. Now, this is what I want you to hear because this wisdom for trials and this wisdom for temptations in the life of the believer, from the perspective of our God who loves us and cares for us and given his son for us, from the perspective of our God, the trials and the temptations are tests. Uh, they are tests in which God is seeking to grow us into more and more of what he wants us to be. Trials are external. They're pressures that Come into our lives. How many of you have ever said something like this? You're going through a trial. You just come out of the trial, and what happens? Another one hits you. What do you say? If it's not one thing, it's another. I, I just got over this mess. Now I got this mess. Uh, we they seem to come in bunches as they gather around us. Trials are external temptations are internal temptations come from within us but the goal of God in the trials and the temptations is to is to grow us Uh, go back to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 this is a marvelous verse Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 14. For by a single offering, that is the offering of Jesus at the cross, He, that is God, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, God has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me tell you what that means when... When Jesus went to the cross to purchase the salvation of sinners through the shedding of his blood, he did everything in that moment to complete you and to make you perfect in his sight. So that when God draws you to Jesus and you give your life to Jesus, and Jesus is the Lord of your life, from that moment on, how does God look at you? In his sight. You're perfect in his sight. You will never be more perfect in the sight of God. You're not from that moment trying to earn his favor. You're not trying to get God to love you. You God could never love you more than in that moment when he saved you through the death of Jesus shedding his blood on the cross. He makes you perfect and complete. And then throughout the course of your life, as a believer, God is completing what is already complete He's perfecting what is already perfect. And one of his ways of doing that is through trials. They are gifts that enable us to, in the context of trials, grow to be more like Jesus. So in the midst of trials, we can say what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verses 6 through 10. I love these verses. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 10. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I can tell you one of the things God's doing in every trial in your life, he's making you look to heaven and long for heaven. He's showing you that there is in this world nothing that can satisfy you. And there are no promises that can satisfy you from this world. How many of you are believers that you know have been going along in life, everything is going great. And then one day you visit the doctor and the doctor says we need to do some tests. The tests are done, you go back to the doctor and he says you have cancer. A trial has come. And in the midst of that trial, if you're a believer, uh, you are wounded, you are hurt, and you struggle, but you know your home is secure. And you look to heaven and you long for heaven. That's why James says, count it all joy. When you meet various trials, for you know that the testing, this is what God is doing, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It develops perseverance and patience in the midst of trial and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Already perfect in God's sight, being perfected, already complete, being complete, lacking in nothing. That's why Paul... In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, listen to this, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. How many of you have learned this? It's easy to exemplify the greatest, most positive kind of character when your life is going great. You know when your character comes out? When life squeezes you. When life doesn't go the way you want it to go. When things don't turn out your way, you know what comes out? Your character. I don't care who you are. That's when people see what's really inside. Because suffering and pain and stress bring out our true selves. Character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given. A.T. Robertson says that we must learn to find the spring of joy in the midst of sorrow. Do you need wisdom for your trials? Ask God. He gives you the wisdom you need right here. So that in the midst of whatever we're facing as believers, it may not make sense to us. We can't explain it logically or rationally. It seems overwhelming at times, all-encompassing at times. But in the midst of it, God is at work. And God is forming in us a character that will bear witness to his greatness and his glory. Secondly, we need wisdom for life in this time in which we live. Listen to what James says, beginning in verse 9, let the lowly brother, that is a great translation because the word here has little or nothing to do with poverty. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation and the rich here, though it can be applied to those who prosper monetarily and materially, it primarily has to do with pride in those things. God blesses us with money and good things. And the danger for any believer in that context is to take pride in that. Uh, To consider yourself blessed of God, which is a complete misunderstanding biblically of the blessing of God. Everything you have, you have received from God, and it is his blessing. But the blessing of God is to give you everything he desires to give you so that you might use it for the advance of the gospel. That's real blessing. So that when we're blessed of God in those economic and material ways, we receive them as blessings and we extend the blessing to others, particularly the hurting and the helpless who need the Lord Jesus Christ. The contrast here is between a person who is fully dependent on God, living in humility, and a person who, because of his circumstances in life, doesn't really need God. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Humiliation here is not humility. Humiliation is God reaching in in the midst of that person's boasting in his material goods. And removing them. Because here's the warning of God. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So all will, also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The key word here is the word boast in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now turn back to the prophet Jeremiah. You will see it on the screen. The prophet Jeremiah chapter 9 Verses 23 and 24, you will see in those words the, the meaning, the trajectory, trajectory of the word for boasting. Jeremiah 9 verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts in this let him who boast boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. I prayed this earlier. But have you known people that for no apparent reason are blessed materially and monetarily. And they seem to turn away from God. Uh, they, they live lives the way they want to live lives. They, they do whatever they desire to do and they have the ability to do that and you watch them and you also see that their life goes so great they don't have the problems that you have and you're a child of God and you wonder. You may even get jealous. You may even get angry. Prosperity is a danger. Do you believe that? God doesn't trust everybody with wealth because not many know how to handle it. For the glory of God. Look at 1st Timothy chapter 6. 1st Timothy chapter 6. Verses 6 through 10. God's warning. 1st Timothy chapter 6 beginning in verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you know that in every culture in the history of the world, that God has prospers. You can study this historically. I would encourage you to do it. Whenever God prospers a culture or a country, that country inevitably over time turns away from God. Now, cultures like that don't say they turn away from God because what they do is create God in their own image. They create their own view of God, and they accommodate their view of God to their lifestyles. Do you know when the church has prospered the most? In times of adversity. Over the course of the last two two weeks, I've been reading, among other things, a book called The Great Ejection. In the late 17th century in England, in the 16th century, the Reformation that came to the church and revolutionized the church, brought the gospel back to the church, literally. That Reformation swept across Germany and France and into the Netherlands and across all of Europe, came to England. And when it came to England, by the middle of the 17th century, The state church in England, the Anglican church, the Episcopal church in America, had said enough of this. So the state church told the pastors of these nonconformist churches... That did not conform to the liturgy of the Church of England because they wanted a church that centered in the exposition, the expository preaching and teaching of God's Word. And these were men who were standing in the pulpit opening the Bible and teaching the Word of God. And the state church said, you must stop. And they didn't. And on one Sunday around the year 1666-67, 2,000 pastors lost their jobs in one day. 2,000. These men had come together in uniting under what was called the nonconformist catechism. There's a section in that catechism that reads like this. You'll see it on the screen. The religion of Jesus, as established in the hearts of men, never flourished more than when it had all the powers of earth engaged against it. the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that refuses to compromise its commitment to the inerrancy, infallibility, and sufficiency of the word of God in this country is going to see in coming years greater adversity than the church has ever seen in the history of our country. And yet, and yet, praise God, the church has never flourished more than in the midst of adversity. You know why? When the world takes away everything we've depended on as believers. Can I say this to you? One of the reasons the church struggles in America in our day is is we as people, we're caught up in so much stuff. Am I right? That takes our attention away and our money away and our time away and our energy away from those things that are of ultimate, infinite, eternal concern. When all of that goes, what have you got left as a child of God? You've got God. And what we're going to learn is he's enough. He is enough. Thirdly, we need wisdom for temptations. A temptation, same word that's used for trials. Blessed is the man, verse 12, who remains steadfast under trial when he has stood the test. He will receive the crown of life. This is the victor's crown that was given to those in athletic competition, particularly in what we would know as the Olympic Games. God has promised that to those who love him. Here is the issue in temptations. I want you to see the end of verse 12 because here is the issue. The issue in temptations is do we love ourselves and our desires and the allurements of the world more than we love God. Temptations are a test of our genuine love for God, the purity of our love for God. So James... Says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. So where does temptation come from? Each person is tempted. Each person. He's talking to believers here. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, the word desire here is an interesting word because it's neutral. A desire doesn't have any attachment here. It's neutral. I desire to eat. But what if I desire to eat as an idol? So I eat and I eat and I eat and I eat and I... I've taken a good desire, a neutral desire, and made it an idol. That happens with our desires. So we have these desires that God has given to us that are good and right, but we are lured and enticed by wanting to fulfill that desire in the way we want to fulfill it, We move away from the Word of God. We move away from the people of God. We move away from prayer. We begin to compromise our time in the Word of God because we are captured by what we want. The word here is we are lured and enticed. Do you know that's a fishing term? It is. You want to catch a fish, you put a worm on a hook, you toss it in the In the water and you sit there and wait. You hope the fish sees the worm and not the hook. You hope the fish bites the worm and takes the hook. Then you've caught the fish by alluring him by something that's attractive to him. This is what temptation is. It is our desires for whatever that Satan entices us and he makes those Desires attractive. Uh, there are people who are tempted this morning. You are being tempted. You haven't yet given in to sin, but there's something going on that's alluring you, enticing you, and somewhere inside of you, you think what is enticing you and alluring you is better than anything else. You've got to have it. You can't live without it. That temptation goes on until it conceives over time. It gives birth to sin, and then sin comes, and it brings death. Let me tell you how one of the ways you can know you're a believer. It's not that you're not tempted. Every believer in this room is tempted. And it's not that you don't give in to temptation. We all do. I can tell you how you know. How do you feel immediately after you've sinned? Grief. Pain. Oh, my God. Because all sin is against God. Russell Moore, one of my favorite people among our Southern Baptist, great leader that's a gadfly of sorts, that's part of why I like him. He says, and I quote, Satan allures us into sin by showing us how much better we would be if we made this choice, and as soon as we make it, as soon as we make it, he mocks us for being such a fool, for making such a choice. Some of our men remember reading Russell Moore's book, Tempted and Tried. He opens that book with a story, a true story, I suppose, about a meatpacking plant out in the Midwest that discovered that the meat they were producing from the cows they were getting was not of the greatest quality. And they hired a company to come in, I guess there are companies who do this, to assess what was going on. And what they found out was that their slaughtering of the animals was was cruel. So they developed a conveyor belt. They put these cows on a conveyor belt. If you're a great animal lover, you can send me an email later (laughs) Uh, because this this sounds so cruel to me. They put these animals on this conveyor belt, and as they were going up the conveyor, conveyor belt, the animals were listening to classical music. It was calming for them. And they had food to eat, conveyor belts moving slowly, and then out of nowhere. (laughs) Russell Moore said, that's how Satan gets you and me. Just allures us and entices us. Now look, if you've sinned and you have, what I just described to you is the pathway that leads always to sin. Always. What do we need? What do we need to know if we would be wise? James tells us, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't let Satan deceive you. Be aware of him. And here are the things you need to be aware of. You need to be aware that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now, James uses the word gift in verse 17. Do you see it? He uses the word gift twice. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. But they are, in the Greek language, they're two entirely different words. You know why? Why? Because the first word for gift has to do with the substance of the gift. The second word has to do with the source of the gift. You know what that means for you as a believer? The real gift for you and me is not what we get, but who the giver is. The real gift is the giver. God giving us himself is always enough. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift because He is the creator. He's the creator of everything, of all things. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. He made the heavens and the earth. He made the stars and the moon and the sun and all the lights, and He is unchangeable. This God does not change. There is no variation or shadow due to change. And look at verse 18. This God... This God brought you to life of his own will. He saved you out of his own will. He brought us to life through the word of truth. The word of truth is a synonym for the gospel. We heard the gospel. We believed the gospel. We received the gospel. God brought us from death to life out of darkness into light that we should be a kind of first fruit. You know what God did? He saved you by his grace. He put you in this world. He sends trials and temptations into your life and people watch how you respond when you're in the fire. They watch. And how you respond either turns them away from Jesus or turns them To Jesus. God didn't come for us as believers always to deliver us from the fire. Wouldn't that be great? He came to take us through the fire. Father, we thank you that you give us wisdom in trials, you give us wisdom in the midst of the time in which we live, you give us wisdom in the midst of temptations. You never promised that the cross would not be heavy, but you did promise to take us all the way through the fire. And for that, we give you praise. Amen.